2: Our guest today is going to help us sort through uh, Iowa, uh, the rest of the primary, and the general election, and just as importantly, the stakes of this election. Secretary of State John Kerry, former United States senator, presidential candidate, uh, Democratic nominee in 2004, uh, has really a unique perspective. He was uh, running in 'oh four and was co- in third or fourth place in Iowa until very late. And really captured a lot of momentum, largely driven by electability. So there's quite a bit of similarity between that race. And now I think Iowa's wide open, and a lot of people concerned about electability. So I think he'll have a unique perspective on that. Uh, What happens after Iowa, The, the race gets much different. You go from kind of almost running for governor of Iowa to, to sprinting across the country and, and flying across the country. So what's that like? And also, you know, his perspective on the general election. He uh, was involved in a very close race against George W. Bush. So the last uh, Democrat to run against an incumbent Republican uh, president. Some of the lessons we can take from that race, and in, in particular, I think how Bush really was able to drive up turnout. Uh, John Kerry in Ohio most famously added uh over 600,000 votes over Al Gore's number in 2000. Everybody thought that would be enough, but it wasn't because Bush was able to find uh, and register and turn out conservatives kind of off the radar screen. And that's clearly part of the Trump playbook. So I think he'll educate us about that and and how dangerous it is to be um, defined before you can properly define yourself, which is one of the challenges he had back in 04. Uh, and then I really want to talk to him about the stakes of this election, both from a, a national security and foreign policy standpoint, uh, but also climate change. He and... Arnold Schwarzenegger started a group called World War Zero uh, that's doing some really important work around climate and just have him talk to us about why he thinks eight years of Trump may make it too late for us uh, to really deal with climate change. And, And it'll be a scary conversation, but I think an important one. So really looking forward to this conversation with Secretary of State John Kerry. Secretary John Kerry, thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be with you, David. Thank you. So you've obviously done so much, continue to do much uh, in the last uh, 16 years. But I want to bring you back to 04, if you wouldn't mind, because I think you have a unique perspective. You know, we're just only, uh, you know, a couple weeks out from Iowa. And in 04, when you were running... You know, you were in third or fourth place uh, for most of that campaign. You trailed Dina Gephardt, then you, you closed with amazing momentum on him and, and won a massive victory. Just talk us through that a little bit, and, and I think the race today in Iowa is incredibly fluid as well. You've got 60 percent of the people saying they're not sure yet who they're going to vote for. Talk about that a little bit, both, but w- what you experienced and, and what's unique about that in our process.
1: Well, first of all, I truly loved campaigning in Iowa. It's a spectacular place, great state amazingly friendly people and unbelievably diligent people. They really go at their primary process, their their caucus process with amazing uh, intensity. They, they'll they go to 10 different things with candidates and go to the same candidates 10 times and then compare their own notes and make a tough decision and, and they get into it. Uh, they take it seriously. They know they're the first in the nation. They know it has an impact and it's wonderfully personal i mean it's the best kind of politics cuz it's house to house it's vfw hall to town meeting hall or whatever and um, you really it, you get down and talk to people and they make a measure of you as a person so it it's it, i think is a highly valued process personally and you know we began to feel i began to sense in december i thought i was going to win as of you know end of november december And you can feel because the personal thing somewhat, the media never really catches up to what is happening in that personal interaction. And so you have a chance to go out and work it. And if you're talking about the things that matter to them in a very personal way and they are convinced you could be a president, I think it makes a difference. To some people want to send a message. Some people use the process as, you know, I'm for the most intensive or I'm for the most left or I'm for the most uh, progressive, whatever it is. And um, I always argue to people, look, don't send a message. Send the country a a president. And uh, it's an opportunity for them to do that. I think they're measuring that way now. And I agree with you. It is fluid. Uh, These next weeks are going to be really key. As you know, I'm supporting Joe Biden. And he's the one person most best position to be able to defeat Donald Trump and I also think he comes with the relationships globally and the instincts and experience that are critical to us in a very broken world right now. But it, it's obviously, um, you know, an all-out uh, effort for everybody and uh, again, um, they will test everybody and listen carefully and I think make uh, good judgment
2: well you're and we'll talk about joe biden a little bit but your you know closing argument and and part of that if i if i recall was definitely a contrast with howard dean right don't send him a message send him a president Part of that was, you know, you're ready to be commander in chief, but part of it was also you're the best person to take on Bush. And there's no doubt that electability drove, I think, your performance in 04. Uh, A lot of people in Iowa then in in subsequent states settled on the fact that they thought you, John Kerry, were the best person to take on Bush. It seems to me that electability is also going to drive a lot of the decision-making here in the close. Do do you agree that? Now, you've been on the ground in Iowa, too, so you've got, you know, uh, probably a pretty good sense of of what people are talking to you about and what's going to drive their decision.
1: Well, David, nobody knows it better than you. I mean, you, you were there with a Barack Obama through his uh, similarly strong caucus performance, and you had a sense you were going to win days out or weeks out. And
2: Days. <laughs> yeah.
1: Days out. Right, All right, right. Days out. Yeah. But I think that you're absolutely on target. It is fluid. There are a bunch of people undecided, and they are going to look for the person they believe can beat Donald Trump. There's no question. Everybody's looking at that in New Hampshire. Every state in the country, they're, they're dependent on it. You know, I would argue to people, I think they did make the right judgment. I think I was the person who should have beaten Bush, and I think there were reasons why we didn't. But we won, you know, I won Wisconsin, I won Michigan, I won Pennsylvania, I won states. Came within one state, Ohio, uh, half the people in a football stadium, and, and that was the difference. And people have forgotten some of the dynamics of that race with Osama bin Laden's tape appearing on the last weekend when we know we were ahead. And we thought we were going to win and the race dynamic shifted over a weekend by marginal points. So I don't think Iowa made a mistake and I think hopefully this time they will look carefully at who is the person who can win. I think if you look at Biden currently in poll after poll in states that are in play, Colorado for instance or North Carolina or Virginia, possibly Arizona – uh, Biden is beating Trump and he's, in a few states, tied with him. Uh, no other candidate has that kind of uh, contrast at this moment in time. Now, uh, you know, I think people have to make their judgments. And I remember races like George McGovern's race and Walter Mondale's race, Michael Dukakis's race. You got to be really careful here how you get positioned. And I think Joe is the one person best positioned not to repeat bad moments for the Democratic Party previously.
2: Right. So I was going to talk about some of the general election lessons from your 04 race against Bush later, but since you brought it up, I I think I will talk here. So my view is if you look at your race, I mean, you talked about Ohio. I mean, you ended up producing uh, about 600,000 more votes than Al Gore did. And if I recall, you know, you guys reached what you thought was a win number. Bush ended up adding 500,000, you know, to his winning margin in in 2000, really uh, both of those remarkable feats. And so my concern about Trump is while he's shown no interest in sort of traditionally expanding his base, what he will do is, I think, similar to what Bush did, which is find every single person, you know, that looks like his MAGA cohort uh, who's not registered or is not a regular voter and turn him out. So that's why I think the electability question is so important now. Um, because I think you see his approval ratings, and I think some people are a little over-optimistic. So you have a unique window, because you actually produced the votes you think you needed, you know, to win Ohio in the presidency, yet you know, Bush in Ohio anyway, really found every conservative voter you could ever imagine. I mean, I, I, if I recall, he got over 2.85 million votes. I mean, I, I think you ended up getting two seven two seven five, which we all thought was going to be plenty to win the state. So I don't know. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, am I re- should we be concerned about what Trump might be able to do here on the registration and, and turnout side?
1: Yes, we should be concerned. And we need to not just match it. We need to exceed and I think we will. I think we can put it that way. But you're absolutely, again, David, you know this better than most people. Yes, you're, you're right about the additional vote. People said to me, look, if you win 500,000 more votes than Gore in Ohio, you're going to win. And so we went out to make that happen. And as you just mentioned, we more than made it happen. The problem is Karl Rove, a number of things happened. Karl Rove put a uh, gay marriage referendum on the ballot which allegedly brought out about 300,000 additional people for Bush, which is just about works out to be the difference overall. And they brought more people to the table also. Uh, In addition to that, you know, we had an institutional problem, which is uh, Terry McAuliffe chose the end of July for the Democratic Convention. And I elected back then to stay within the campaign finance system. That turned out to be a terrible mistake and I remember writing a long memo to Barack Obama when he was thinking of running saying you cannot run a 50-state campaign for president under the campaign finance laws. So We could not spend money in the month of August when I was being attacked by the swift boat guys. We had to harbor our money because we didn't know what would happen in October and so forth. And um, Bush was able to spend liberally because he wasn't under the restraint until his convention, which was at the end of August. So that was institutionally a problem. Secondly, um, the administration kept doing red alerts and orange alerts back in the days of the you know war, and um, people were scared. And we had shifted the whole campaign onto work, jobs, fairness, uh, wages, education, and so forth. And then on the last weekend on Friday— A tape was released uh, allegedly by the CIA to the media and it was uh, Osama bin Laden speaking about our election and the whole talk shifted back to security and we watched our polls freeze on Friday night and actually drop a point by Monday. So the, the campaign discussion shifted over a weekend and then thirdly, I had to pull out because of the money situation, I had to pull out of Colorado, I had to pull out of Virginia, three weeks ahead of time in order to have money for a couple of battleground states. And um, I only lost those states after three weeks of being pounded without an answer by a point and a half or two points maximum, uh, point 0.8, I think, in in Virginia. So, and I won Fairfax County, first Democrat to win it since Lyndon Johnson. So, you know, I, I think it was just a lot of dynamics and, and it means you've got to pay attention to those things. Our candidate, I believe, whoever the nominee is, will have adequate resources, uh, particularly with uh, conceivably Mike Bloomberg and Tom Steyer and other people uh, stepping up in a way that democratic wealthy people haven't uh, historically to a comparison to the the Koch brothers or other people who funded on the other side of the fence. So I think that we'll have the uh, wherewithal, we'll have the intensity on the ground partly because of Trump. And we will register people and it's up to the party to do the hard work of getting ready for this. But I think the dynamics of this race are good for us as long as nobody gets complacent. People work as hard as they need to, to put a whole bunch of very serious issues back on the table.
2: So I'm curious, uh, by the way, you know, your performance in Virginia and Colorado, you know, we studied it carefully. And it's one of the reasons we decided to go all in there. And I agree with you. The tragic thing would be if our nominee would like to compete in six or eight or 10 states and can't because of resources. That would, you know, to your point, I mean, if you had been able to win Virginia and Colorado, that was more electoral votes in Ohio. So, yeah, you want to have maximum march fare. I'm curious just from uh, from a candidate perspective. So, You know, back in 04 uh, and 03, mostly, you spent a lot of time in Iowa, then New Hampshire. In a way, it's almost sleepy. I mean, it's not. It's intense. But you're going state to state. Then it goes national. Now, your race obviously broke decidedly for you. So you won just about everything going forward against John Edwards. This one, you know, maybe someone will do that. Maybe we're going to have two to three people battling it out till June, which is kind of a nightmare scenario. But what's that like for a candidate, like going from, you know, you're basically running for governor of Iowa to a national campaign kind of, you know, airport to airport. Um, it's probably more similar to the general election in a way, which maybe that's good training ground.
1: Well, it, I think it is and it was, uh, David. But still, I had I didn't secure the nomination until uh, March, I think it was. And so you have very little time. I mean, that's one thing that struck me. Uh, you're building a billion-dollar operation in the span of a few months. Uh, the expansion process is gigantic. And the disadvantages running against an incumbent are very real. I mean, the incumbent has four years building up the war chest, getting around the country, playing president, and uh, building up, hopefully, building up a, uh, a structure. We won't have that luxury, and and so our nominee, you know, we won't have a convention until I forget. I think it's July or something, and so you don't officially kick off until then. A lot of things come together. To me, that's one of the advantages of having somebody known and trusted and liked like Joe Biden because it's really key to not have to play catch-up to introduce yourself and go through a whole lot of stuff, though there's obviously an introduction process no matter who you are. It's just not the same. And And I think we have to be really wary of a circular firing squad in the Democratic Party. I mean, it hurt Hillary enormously to have Bernie carry on all the way out. I think that's why Iowa is so important and New Hampshire important to a candidate like Joe and others. If Joe is does really well in Iowa, he doesn't have to win Iowa. But if he does well in Iowa, or if by chance he were to win it and go to New Hampshire and win it, he's the nominee. It's over. And I think uh, you know then Bloomberg doesn't figure into it, and the others just have no justification for continuing on. And hopefully they will see that. But if on the other hand uh, this thing is spread out in Iowa, uh, and the same thing happens in New Hampshire, for sure you will have, uh, with Bloomberg playing in, in the uh, Super Tuesday, and money running out for other candidates, uh, this thing will really be bad for the Democratic Party and uh, where we are. I'm hoping that's not going to happen.
2: Yeah, I'll come back to that just uh, quickly in a minute. But as it relates to Biden, I mean, I think that we're always surprised in these campaigns, but it seems to me... One, I think as much as you could say anything's a fact, if Joe Biden wins South Carolina, you know, I think that probably means he did well enough in the three states beforehand to allow that to happen. But it seems to me if you win South Carolina, he's going to be really, really hard to beat. Doesn't mean he'll win a majority of the delegates, but because I think his African-American support would then be strong, Latino support, um, working, uh, you know, uh, you know, voters across the country. It seems to me that that is really I mean, Iowa is obviously so important because it influences that. But, but think about it. Now, you, you obviously um, know South Carolina. You endorsed Barack Obama. And that was, you know, an important reason we got the momentum to win South Carolina. And that was, you know, probably the decisive moment for us and allowed us to go into February with enough strength back then. And in, in this case, it's March um, where most of the country will vote. But as you think about this, is South Carolina, I mean, if Biden can win South Carolina, it seems to me he's going to be difficult to stop.
1: Well, are you saying wins it but doesn't win New Hampshire or Iowa or what?
2: In any scenario. So, obviously, I agree with you. If he wins Iowa and New Hampshire... Well, if he wins Iowa and New Hampshire and then South Carolina, it's over. But even if he doesn't win Iowa and New Hampshire, but he somehow, you know, obviously, if he comes in fifth in those states, it may be not possible to win South Carolina. But if he wins South Carolina, so there's a scenario where that's the capstone of those first four states. There's also a scenario where he's bleeding a little bit, but he wins South Carolina, which... By definition, means no one was able to get real strength with the African-American vote, which none of the candidates today. Bernie shows a little bit of potential there.
1: But Yeah, but by, you know better than anyone, again, that this, that's a very important message to the party and to people elsewhere as you go into these other states and Super Tuesday. I think that if he's got a strong uh, African-American base that has showed up and helped him win in South Carolina and he's also got Hispanic, et cetera, he's very strong going forward still.
2: Right. Last political question, then we'll get to some of the the stakes of this election from a substantive standpoint. So you mentioned, and I agree with you, I I think if we don't really have our nominee till July um, or even June, the advantage that gives Trump is huge. I mean, we, as you know uh, very well, uh, were benefited from defining Romney early as he was going through his primary. Uh, George Bush was able to do that to you. Uh, Clinton was able to do it to Dole. I think you make an interesting point that that it may be harder to do that to a Biden just because he is better known than some of the other candidates. But, I mean, how worried should Democrats be? I mean, could we potentially lose this election in the next five months or is that as important You know, as the last five months? I think it might be, but I'd be curious to get your view on that.
1: Boy, that's a really tough question. I, I don't think so, not with impeachment mm-hmm. and not given the numbers that I see on Donald Trump anyway. Uh, I, I think that were it otherwise, maybe, but I don't think so in this case. I think this impeachment is going to be a searing process. I think Republicans are underestimating the state of the evidence and the nature of the crime. And I think it's going to be a very, very tough vote for some of those uh, senators who have just been towing the line up until now. I mean, what we saw with Les Parmes and his testimony. I'm a former prosecutor. I'm listening to the folks in the White House say, "Well, he's a, you know, he's a, a criminal and a low life and a guy that you can't trust because he's indicted." Well, you know, an indicted guy who continues to lie goes to prison for sure for longer. So nobody, his lawyers are not sitting there letting him lie and he has zero interest to step up and lie because he's really going to be behind bars for a long time. You don't approach prosecution and suddenly start talking the truth in ways that are going to compound your situation. So I just don't buy this quick dismissal and they're going to have a hard time making that work. And secondly, we had an old saying when we prosecute, you know, when, you, when you're prosecuting the devil, you don't go to heaven for your witnesses. And sure, he's flawed. He, absolutely, he's flawed. Uh, but boy, when you compare it to the lies that are compounded now and compounding still to the cover-up that goes on, even a cover-up on the ran. You know, they say, well, when you have an imminent decision, you have to make your decision. You can't notify people. There's nothing imminent about it. We now learned that he made it on a decision on a golf course in June, months ahead of time. And this has been in the works for a long time. I think America is tired of being lied to. And I think it is imperative that we remember that as we go forward here. So I don't think this dynamic will shift that dramatically. And um, in my judgment, we're dealing with a very unique circumstance uh, also, I think you know once it's clear, let's say Joe is the nominee, uh, there's going to be a massive amount of money assembled because Republicans are also deserting their party. Uh, people are switching saying, I cannot vote for Trump, I'm not going to vote for him again. So he has his base, yes he does, but he does not have an enormous capacity to grow. And uh, I'd much rather have uh, our numbers in a sense than his numbers going into this race.
2: the stakes of this election, you know, you were obviously involved in, in, in an election in 2004 where um, I think in the Democratic Party we, we didn't think there could be higher stakes. Uh, the difference between, um, you know, two terms of George W. Bush versus one, you know. The
1: difference between one term of Dick Cheney and the next of George Bush.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, but I think it's fair to say it's not simply a doubling of the damage. I mean, if, if Trump serves two terms. So how do you think about that? And And is that obviously I want to talk about climate change and some of the issues you're involved with. But you have a unique vantage point, I think, to, to talk to you know the country about the stakes in this election.
1: Well, our democracy is is as threatened as I've ever seen it be threatened. I mean, literally, our democracy is threatened. Uh, we do not have a baseline for truth in America anymore. We have no, some of the referees for that, uh, for establishing what the truth is and what the facts are, have been taken away. We have a plethora of. of uh, sources uh, for the dissemination of news. People are self-selecting in where they go. So we become even more polarized before you even get to the racism and the exploitation and the demagoguery and so forth. So it's a very, very dangerous time for our country. And I find when I travel abroad, as I still do, and meet with leaders in other countries, they're perplexed and they're scratching their heads and asking themselves, where is the United States we knew? Where, where are you going? Uh, there's a new book out by Henri Bonal Levy who's a French writer, philosopher type. And he's written about America and, and sort of the, you know, five countries that are now challenging us, uh, Turkey and Russia and China. And it's a very important thesis as to whether or not, uh, because our credibility is tarnished. Our reliability is tarnished. The values that have organized the world for the last 75 years since World War II are under assault and if they are given another four years uh, for a president who attacks NATO, who criticizes our greatest allies like uh, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, or, or Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, as he has, and sides with you know, dictators and, and uh, demagogues, whether it's in Italy or in uh, Hungary or in Russia, this is a dangerous time. You saw how close we came to the brink of war where fundamentally the President of the United States, Donald Trump, farmed out, outsourced, the decision about going to war to Iran. Because if Iran had answered uh, the killing of Soleimani differently, if they had killed an American or they damaged something that was vital to us, Trump would have had to respond. We'd have been at war. So fundamentally, he killed Soleimani and the decision as to whether we go to war was left in the hands of the responders, a regime we don't like and we don't trust. That's just absurd and dangerous. And when you look at super hypersonic weapons coming online, the nature of warfare changing with cyber threat to our companies and to our uh, facilities, uh, this is the most dangerous time I can think of in my lifetime and I grew up – with exercises of ducking under our desks in the event of a nuclear war. This is really a a difficult time, David, and I think we need adults, we need leadership, we need to step up and meet the challenge of the United States leading the free world, not exiting from the free world and leaving the free world up for grabs. So others are now flexing their muscles. The Ottoman Empire aspirations of Erdogan are being felled in Syria, now in Libya. Russia is always a menace in playing games with us. Uh, China has huge expansive uh, ambitions, and the Islamic world has ambitions. You have Iran, number four in those five, and then you have the Sunni Islamic world, which is vying against the Iran and the Persian Shia. So, boy, do you need expertise and experience at the helm and you need to restore America's credibility as rapidly as you can. I don't believe we have time for a younger, new president to get to know the leaders in the rest of the world. That'll take a year or two, and to be trusted, to have a sense of direction. And our democracy at home is fundamentally at test because there's too much money in American politics, too much big money, too much money crowding out the average American. Our society is becoming more and more unfair The inequities of wages and the inequity of work uh, compared to the upper 1% is going to rip and tear at the fabric of our social structure. It already is, and it's just getting worse. The swamp has gotten bigger under Donald Trump. So when I add up all these things and I look at gerrymandering, which denies people a legitimate democratic election in the general election, and you add it to the fact that 51% of all of America's income – goes to 1 percent of Americans, neither of those things are sustainable in in the building of a shared uh, body politic and trust in national government. So the failure of governance, the United States Senate, I spent 28 years in it, does nothing today, nothing but confirm a few judges that Mitch McConnell throws at them for some votes. There are countless pieces of legislation passed in the House that are just sitting on the desk of the majority leader. This is not a good moment for our democracy, and democracies in the world are under pressure, and we need to respond to that. So you add it all up. uh, I I don't think you get a more critical moment. Then you have climate change on top of that, which is absolutely existential. Yeah, oh, that little item uh, where we, we now are living with extraordinary events uh, and i followed that i've worked on this issue for 35 years i know this issue and i know the facts i went as secretary of state to the arctic i went to antarctic i saw what the scientists and heard what the scientists said is happening and it's almost criminal that the president of the united states is willing to allow uh, americans to die from additional storms from unprecedented mudslides and fires all of which can be attributed to their in their intensity, not the fact you have a fire, but the intensity of the fire, the breadth of the fire, the readiness of the ground to burn is directly related to the increased warming of the oceans, increased moisture, increased rain, increased undergrowth, and then with a the drought, you have a fire with greater intensity. So it is related to climate change. And the fact we have a president who until a week ago said this is a Chinese hoax. And I was in Madrid at the conference uh, for the UN just a month ago. Three countries prevented something constructive from happening. Australia, which is now burning. Brazil, which has major problems with the Amazon, and the United States of America. And that is to be compared to Barack Obama and, and the Obama administration, Obama, Biden, all of us who worked so hard to bring about the Paris Agreement which brought 196 countries together to do something about this.
2: Right. So I, I want to come back to climate in, in this election. Um, I'm just curious, you know, you served as Secretary of State, obviously, uh, as a United States senator, um, know the world as, as well as just about anybody. When you think about Orban and um, Erdogan and Xi and Putin, you know, in the chess match that is foreign policy, I mean, do you think they ever thought there would be a United States president who was this weak, I mean, they must be pinching themselves every day. They're laughing
1: their way to the bank.
2: But what what does that mean for them? I mean, it just seems like there's no resistance.
1: What means open opportunity? I mean, our president of the United States, Donald John Trump, stood beside Putin, maybe seven feet away from him, in Helsinki. And when asked about Russian interference in America's election, which every single component of our intelligence community said was Russia, Donald Trump looked at Putin and said, he denied it to me, and I don't have any reason not to believe him. What an extraordinary—John McCain called that the moment of greatest infamy he's seen of a president of the United States ever in recent memory. And you think about it, I mean, he threw the entire intelligence community, the United States, under the bus, saying, I have no reason not to believe Putin. It's beyond belief, and these guys are all incredulous. They think he's a fool. They're taking advantage of him. And you had our allies at a London cocktail party for the NATO allies laughing and joking about Trump. And when he learned about it, and he did because it was picked up on television cameras and microphones, he promptly summoned his airplane, told people he's going home, so like a kid in a playground— he went home to lick his wounds and start tweeting again. This is an unbelievable moment for our nation to have Putin feeling great with Trump around, she feeling like the competition's off the field, Erdogan feeling he can move into Libya and do other things and get Russian defense missiles as a member of NATO instead of you know American and NATO compatible ones. Uh, things are shredding and coming apart Because of this president, when I think I was at Normandy for the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion and to think of the sacrifice of those soldiers to stand up for American values and win against fascism and tyranny and here we have a president who's bowing before it, it's disgrace.
2: You know, it's interesting. If if you watched a Netflix show that had an American president behaving this way, like I would turn it off because I'm like, that's not believable. It's like kind of like House of Cards, right? Or a book. Like, <laughs> it's true. It's so true. why is he behaving in this way? What's your diagnosis of that? There's a lot of the, I'm just curious what you think. What is behind this?
1: Well, I fear that, I mean, I genuinely fear. I don't have the proof of it, though I have friends in British intelligence who tell me every word of The Steele dossier is is accurate, and I can't vouch for that one way or the other, but that's what they say. Uh, I think somehow he is conceivably compromised, or he simply has a view that is not genuinely uh, putting America first, but is disruptive in the vein of Steve Bannon, and I'm sure he still talks regularly to Bannon, and this is very much a Bannon playbook.
2: Right. I mean, he just clearly admires, you know, this type of rule. And I, and I think my fear is he thinks that's how we ought to roll here. It's Well, that you know, it's may, maybe at the top of the reason why we have to win this election. But let's talk about climate. So you, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, have started an organization, really exciting organization called World War Zero. So before we get to the work you're doing, talk about how important – what would be the difference to the world between Donald Trump gets another term and four more years – and a democratic president comes in. I mean, could the difference between those two things be the survival of the planet, or is that too extreme a statement?
1: No, it's not too extreme a statement for the simple reason. Uh, The best scientists in the world, thousands of them, who have taken part in the United Nations process for, what, since 1992 now, uh, those scientists have warned us again and again, and most recently, a few months ago, that we had 12 years now down to 10 years in order to make decisions that can help us avoid the worst of the warming and try to keep the Earth's temperature increase around 2 degrees centigrade. If we did everything that is in the Paris Agreement, we would still rise 3.7 degrees, which is almost uh, unfathomable in terms of what will happen on planet Earth. But the problem is we're not even holding it to that. We're not getting Paris done. All of the major emitter countries, there are 20 countries in the world who emit about 85 to 90 percent of all the emissions in the world that created the problem. And those countries are not getting the job done. Not one of them. Not us. Not Europe. Not China. Not India. And so forth. So this year, emissions are going up. They're going up in India. They're going up in the United States. They're going up in China. They're going up in Europe. It's unacceptable. It's crazy. That's why sixteen-year-old kids are striking at school because they're smart enough to read the intelligence, read the the science, and to understand the science. And so, we're ignoring the warning signals. We're actually heading. Scientists will tell you we are actually heading to four to four and a half degrees. It's hard to to describe to people what that means. But last year, last summer. In Pakistan, there was a city that was at 125 degrees and people were dying because they just human beings just can't survive in that kind of heat. And so many more cities are going to f- see that if we have the melting of the Iceland sheet and the melting, which all of which is happening. This is not conjecture. The, the Greenland ice sheet is melting four times faster than it was 10 years ago. And you can visibly see it disappearing as we continue to get warmer. Last July was the hottest July in human history. One day in July was the hottest day in human history. The decade was the hottest decade in human history. The decade before that, second hottest. Decade before that, third hottest. So an average person would say to myself, God, you know, something's happening here. That's sort of evidence of something. You know, we buy insurance for our cars, for potential crashes. We buy insurance for homes, for fires. We buy life insurance. We're not buying life insurance for planet Earth. And, and the irony of it, David, is that there's millions of jobs to be created here. This is not goo-goo tree-hugging junk. The reality is the new energy economy will be the strongest, most extraordinary economy we've ever had. There are millions of jobs, according to one of the latest analyses I've seen from a reputable entity, 62 million jobs by 2030 for building out the wind, building out the solar, building out a national grid, building out the charging stations for electric vehicles, building the electric vehicles. Automakers aren't gonna lose their jobs. You could just, instead of building an internal combustion engine car, you build a car with a battery. I mean, this is doable. The United States of America traditionally leads on difficult things. We went to the moon, we invent the internet. We're not doing what we need to do now to prepare for the future and create those jobs. And so, uh, you know, multiple companies are going to lose a lot of money. We spent $265 billion two years ago to clean up after three storms, Harvey, Irma, and Maria. And Harvey dropped more water in Houston in five days than goes over Niagara Falls in an entire year. Uh, It's just, you know, we're not paying attention to the reality as a matter of governance, and that's one of the things why people are so angry because governance is failing. It's not just failing here. It's failing in many, many other countries in the world. And it's a very dicey moment, frankly, for global governance. So all of this is what is at stake.
2: So Trump, uh, if he gets a second term, we know he won't, I mean, he won't do anything about climate, but it, but more than that, he's doing things to make it worse, right? He's rolling back a lot of the environmental. So we know that Trump is is going to be as malevolent as a presence as you can imagine, (laughs) as the planet is in peril. So presumably a Democratic president would find us to get uh, a way to get back into the Paris climate accords. What are the top, you know, three to five things you think? So because I think there are a lot of young voters who may say, I don't like Trump, but, you know, and I care about climate, but I'm not sure anything's going to happen. So how can we give people confidence that it does matter? And what are the concrete things a Democratic president could do to really bend the curve here?
1: The Democratic president basically has to treat this issue for what it is and it's like going to war. We have to summon – there's a book out. There's a really good book out by Paul Kennedy, professor at Yale University of uh, History. and um, The book is called Engineers of Victory and it analyzes the key decisions that had to be made in order to know we could win World War II. And at the beginning of 1943, it wasn't absolutely clear the allies would automatically win so these key decisions were made you know how to control the air how to control the seas how do we get the troops over how do we bust the lines all these kinds of key decisions and obviously we did win and it rewrote the history of the next 75 years until now we have to do that the president has to summon the automakers to the white house use the power of the presidency be their friend sit there and say okay guys We've got to do this sooner than than 2050 and 2045. What do you need to make that happen? How do we transition? Uh, do you need, to, you know, can I help with a tax credit? Can we create incentives for Americans who can't afford it to trade in their current cars so they can get into an electric vehicle? Then you bring in the utilities and you bring in the great builders of our nation and and the governors and the and. The regulators, and you've got to decide how are we going to build the charging stations so that every American can get to work, can get to the hospital, can go to the grocery store and not feel they're going to run out of battery power. You've got to have charging stations. You need to build the infrastructure. We don't even have a national grid in the United States of America, David. We we are powerless
2: to send power. I think you talked about this back in '04, if I yes, recall. Yes, I did. You, you've been talking about that for a long time. Yeah. I did. Yeah.
1: And unfortunately, it, it remains talk, which is a bitter pill. But the fact is that that you can't send power from one part of the country to another part of the country. And we should be able to do that with smart grids, with artificial intelligence and supercomputing. We have the capacity. And, and none of this is a mystery as to how we solve the problem. This, this climate change will be solved by energy policy. And so you've got to make these decisions and put a lot of things on the table. Some people may not like some of the things, like fourth-generation modular nuclear. Some people say, wow, that that's absolutely emission-free. It's safe. Uh, we've got to go and build it. And others say, no, it's too expensive now and we're scared of nuclear uh, this is – you know, we've got to – it takes leadership to put these options in front of people and to work through them and uh, Donald Trump's reelection would just eliminate uh, – it would be an eight-year period during a 10-year period of what we have to do and that's just uh, – it's Katie Barr the door as far as I'm concerned.
2: No, I mean, that should motivate us all to do everything we can do possibly in this election. So with with World War Zero, what are you trying to accomplish? And are there ways for the average citizen to get involved and be helpful with your effort?
1: Absolutely, David, and thank you for asking that. Um, the website is worldwarzero.com, and we ask you to enlist. And there is a toolkit, and there will be more toolkit coming to people for individual things you can do in your life, Local things you can do in your community, statewide things you can do, federal things you can contribute to, and then international priorities. And we're going to be building an army of people who are going to help spread the word and make climate itself a voting issue. Apparently the polls show that 70% of Americans are very worried about climate change, concerned about it. But up until now, it hasn't been a voting issue. And what I learned uh, back in 1970 when we did the first Earth Day and we targeted 12 congressmen who were the worst votes in Congress, we labeled them the dirty dozen, and we defeated seven of them in the next election. That's the moment that we broke the dam and got the Clean Air Act passed, the safe drinking water, marine mammal protection, coastal zone management, endangered species, and we created the Environmental Protection Agency of America. We didn't even have one until then. Voters did that. They did it by making it a voting issue, defeating seven people who wouldn't move. So that's what we have to do. We have to reach Americans, talk to them. We're planning to have more than 10 million conversations uh, digitally, obviously, a lot of them. We're going to do micro-targeting. We're going to go to the people we know are committed or should be committed. And uh, if we just get several millions of them out there voting because they know this is one of the most critical issues of our time— I believe we will change the future. I believe that's how you win it back. You have to make democracy work and you got to make it a voting issue. And World War Zero is calculated to help people to do that and uh, it's called World because the whole world has to be part of this and we have people abroad who have already signed up or involved, leaders of, of countries previously, the former president of Iceland, former prime minister of Sweden, a whole bunch of leaders, two former prime ministers of Australia, by the way, ironically. And, you know, if we can uh, use all these influencers, what we're trying to do is marry the grassroots and the grass tops. And if we get the grass tops and grassroots together, I think it's a very powerful force that can have a profound influence. For instance, General Stan McChrystal, who headed up all of our special forces, uh, no greater patriot than he, no one more aware. And he's on board saying, yeah, we got to treat this with the utmost seriousness and we got to get going. So that's the kind of thing we're going to try and do, and and I think it can make a huge difference. And it's a war, frankly, because tragically, some people have declared war on science and war on facts and on evidence. And with people dying in America already as a consequence, uh, we have to win this.
2: Well, if you get anywhere close to the numbers you're talking about, it could make not just the difference in this election but in – the survival of the planet. So uh, it's so uh, incredible that you're spending so much of your time on this and would encourage everybody listening and to, to themselves, check out how they can help with World War Zero and, and share it with everybody in their networks. It's really... Um, couldn't be more important. John Kerry, thank you so much for what you continue to do um, for our country and the world. It's really been great talking to you. You have a unique perspective. I will take this moment to also thank you uh, eight years later for, I don't think folks uh, probably have a proper understanding of the role you played in 2012 when Barack Obama had, you know, a really, really tough election with Mitt Romney, um, made tougher after our first debate bomb. But you were playing Mitt Romney in those debates. You obviously did a good job before the first debate, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, we recovered. And it wasn't just the stand-in work you did uh, with Romney, which you did br- brilliantly, but you you were a, such an important uh, voice with great counsel uh, to get us off the mat. So uh, and you were just also fun to be in the foxhole with. So a um, long time ago, but I want to thank you for that.
1: Thank you. I'm not sure I should say thank you to you for making me Mitt Romney for a while, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, tell you the truth, he's a good man, and I like him, and it was hard at the time to play, but uh, I hope he's going to do the right thing in the next months, weeks here.
2: Well, politics is funny these days. We take about 40 more just like them, right? We might not have thought that 10 eight years ago, but we do today.
1: That's for sure. That's for sure.
2: Secretary Kerry, thank you so much. Good luck with all the work you're doing to protect our planet.
1: Thank you, David. Appreciate it very much. Thanks.
2: So great to spend time with John Kerry. I hope you'll benefit from his perspective on a variety of topics. So first of all, You know, his view of Iowa, he was there when it broke open late for him. And what's that like and what lessons we might be able to learn uh, for this election? Uh, Obviously, he talked about why he's supporting uh, Joe Biden, thinks he would be both the best candidate to beat Trump and and the best president. So interesting to hear more about his rationale there. Uh, Super interesting to talk to him about the general election. He obviously lost uh, in part uh, due to just coming up short in Ohio because George Bush turned out hard to believe number of conservatives and the lessons we can take from that um, as well as the fact that you know they weren't able to compete uh, in a couple of states due to the financial resource uh, constraints Virginia and Colorado back then so we have to make sure that, that doesn't happen again to our nominee and and the danger of uh, the summer uh, where and and even the early spring where um, you know George Bush did a very good job uh, uh, of defining the race and John Kerry obviously the the sleazy Swift Boat Veterans for Truth uh, carry the baton forward. But um, I think all that suggests that the sooner we can have a nominee, the better. Maybe we won't and we'll have to deal with that. But I think some important lessons there from someone who's seen the dangers of facing an incumbent Republican president up close when your your nomination doesn't get secured for some time. And, you know, listening to John Kerry talk about the stakes of this election Uh, from a foreign policy standpoint, uh, restoration of democracy, the climate uh, could not be more frightening. Uh, And so uh, if nothing's gotten you to act (laughs) up to this point, uh, we need to take that seriously. And I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have decided who they're going to vote for. They might be uh, volunteering for one of the primary candidates. But we all have to be ready to make our own plan for how we're going to help in the general election. Uh, Because when you listen to John Kerry talk about the difference between eight years of Trump and four years of Trump, it comes in searing focus uh, that we may not uh, certainly won't like who we are if it's eight years but we may not survive it. So um, anyway, thanks for tuning in and uh, talk to you soon on Campaign HQ.